Today we're going to be taking a look at Matthew, not Matthew, at Mark, Mark's Gospel, chapter 13. And uh, this is that, uh, that chapter which I would so much rather not be preaching. But uh, since we've been doing this study through the book of Mark, it seems appropriate for us not to skip any of it. And, uh, and so I hope to treat this with, uh, with a humble heart and uh, with just an open mind. And, uh, and I pray that the Lord will give you some take-homes uh, today from here. Let's read it together. Mark chapter 13, and as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. This is, of course, Jesus with his disciples in Jerusalem during Holy Week. It's actually uh, the second day of the Holy Week. He's just had the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, and so this is actually Monday, uh, or actually it would have been, well, I guess, uh, it would have been coming through on a Sabbath, so that would have been, well, anyway. You can figure out the math, but it's somewhere in Holy Week. Teacher, look at these wonderful stones and these wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to, said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another. They will not be thrown down. Well, that's a bit of a buzzkill, isn't it? Uh, you're kind of excited to be in the capital city. It's a festival time. The people have come together for Passover. And uh, people are gathering from literally all over the world. It's the most important feast of the year. It's the beginning of the season of feasts. And uh, the Passover is the beginning of the year. It's a celebration of God's salvation and God's uh, birthing of Israel as a nation. It's a very important feast. And people are in Jerusalem, are coming to Jerusalem from literally the far, farthest corners of the Roman Empire. Wherever they've been scattered, they, they're coming, making pilgrimage. And, uh, and they come to this beautiful building, which is, according to the Senate in Rome, one of the most beautiful pieces of architecture, architecture that's ever been built. The Senate in Rome actually uh, marveled at Herod's uh, architecture and uh, this temple which Herod started and then uh, his, uh, his sons completed uh, has been standing probably for the better part of about 30 years. Uh, Jesus was dedicated in this, in this temple as a child. Maybe 40 years it's been completed and, uh, and it's, it's still in its heyday. And Jesus says, not one stone will be left upon another. What a buzzkill. And as he sat down on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, <clears throat> Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Well, that seems an obvious question, isn't it? A question in my mind as well. If we come into Jerusalem and I'm looking and marveling at all of this, and Jesus says, don't marvel at this stuff. It's all going to be torn down. That temple is going to be destroyed. <laughs> I might ask the same question. Just when exactly is this going to happen? And how are we going to get to see this? Um, I know that you guys are not at all uh, negative and uh, I know that you guys are not at all uh, fired up about the trajectory of our society. I, I know you guys don't think at all about those, those Facebook and Instagram posts that talk about how terrible Disney is and, uh, and how we ought to be boycotting this or that. I, I know you guys don't pay any attention to those sorts of things and don't get yourself all riled up. Those of you who are parents of young children aren't for a moment thinking about how uh, society is getting ready to brainwash your children into all kinds of dysphorias. I know you guys don't worry about that at all. So Jesus sitting saying the temple's going to be destroyed, that, that would probably be a big surprise to you as well, wouldn't it? No. Aren't we all somehow innately aware that there is an end coming? Are we not all looking for some sort of judgment to fall upon the ungodly? 
Do we not all have some sort of moral stance? Do we not compare ourselves with one another? Do we not look at the world around us and start to feel the distance between the way things used to be and the way things are becoming? Are we not all troubled? Don't we look at the, uh, the wars that are taking place in our current moment in time and, and marvel that there is any restraint at all? I think all of us have this sense of the winding down of the clock. And Jesus isn't going to help us much here because he's actually going to confirm those things, isn't he? Let's read on further. Tell us when will these things be and when will be, what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places and there will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Verse 14, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the rooftop, on the housetop, not go down, nor enter his house, nor take anything out of it. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather in his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things, all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each 
with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. That's what's known as the Olivet Discourse. You find it repeated in Matthew and in Luke's Gospel. And, uh, and of course, in uh, John's Apocalypse, in the, uh, in the Revelation of John, you, you'll find elements of this repeated, but in different ways. John sees a vision later in life uh, while he's on the Isle of Patmos, and many of these things are elaborated on or just expanded out in terms of their sort of kaleidoscopic e effect. There's, you know, you ever look through a kaleidoscope and when you turn the wheel and you see the different colors, that's kind of what happens in the book of Revelation. Uh, it doesn't necessarily become clearer and more in focus. It just gets more beautiful and more colorful and more dramatic. But this passage from Mark chapter 13 is uh, not something we can gloss over, certainly not in Holy Week. Uh, while it is important for us to see uh, the miraculous event, um, Richard mentioned this morning the miraculous way in which the, uh, the cult was ready. Uh, we talked about that a few weeks ago in church. Then there's the miraculous way in which the room is made ready, the, up, the upper room for, uh, for, the, for the Passover meal. And there are uh, other beautiful things that take place, including uh, the um, most likely, I'm not exactly sure of the timeline, but it seems most likely that Mary pouring out the, uh, the ointment uh, on Jesus' feet and on his head uh, takes place during Holy Week as well. And uh, Judas is incensed because of it, and it it's adds to the, to the fury of his heart that leads him to betray Christ. So all these things are important things to talk about as we lead up to Easter weekend, uh, Resurrection weekend, next weekend. But this is the one passage which I think is probably preached the least, uh, at least during Holy Week, the, the, the end of the age. And the, the question of this, of this um, you know, the end of the age, when's it going to happen and what's it going to look like? For me, I think it's supremely important that we get our, our brains around at least some of it. I don't know that we can ever interpret all of this stuff. I don't know that anybody ever has, with clarity, shown uh, the exact nature of what the Lord is saying here. I, I don't know that it's ours to interpret to that level. I think what we're supposed to see is generalized in pieces of information that we can synthesize into some sort of an idea of how to gauge the temperature, the climate of our society. But there are certain elements which are steadfast and which we should, never, we should never neglect. One is, it does all come to an end. One is, the judgment is coming. Another is that redemption comes and victory for those who endure. Another is that the Master is coming back. That's, uh, the, these, are, these are absolutely, categorically, undeniably uh, uh, the truth. And uh, His Word will never fail. And so we can hold on to those things. There's another portion in here which to me is absolutely imperative. It's the, the spontaneity uh, of being led by the Holy Spirit in the moment of, most, of greatest need. When uh, the disciples are warned by Jesus that they're going to have to stand in front of authorities to give uh, testimony and to be put on trial because of their faith in Jesus Christ, he warns them in advance and says, don't worry, don't be anxious about what you're going to say. Don't prepare your speech in advance. Don't be ready with a debate that's perfect, that can get you out of trouble. Instead, be led by the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see that uh, happen in the early chapters of the book of Acts. We're going to see Peter stand up in front of people and give 
uh, a sermon which is, which is so profound that thousands of people come to Christ in, in the middle of his sermon. And, uh, and we're going to see them stand before authorities and, and say, it is better for us to obey God than it is to obey man. And we're going to see Stephen stand up in front of uh, his accusers, and he is going to speak forth with boldness the word of the Lord. And he's going to be put to death, stoned. But he's not going to back away from it because being filled with the Holy Spirit, he's going to speak. And this to me is really, really important. And I think if there's any take home I wanted you guys to have from the passage today, it's going to be this deep reliance upon the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I think what happens is that when we look at the end of the age, the prophecies of the end of the age, and our version of the prophecies of the end of the age, you know, so the accumulation of what we think ought to happen, what God ought to do, we become actually quite well versed with, uh, with our, our response to culture. We become quite uh, full of words that we'd like to say. And I want to warn you against that. I want to warn you against becoming an expert at pulling down the culture. May I, may I do this <laughs> uh, in this place? I don't think that it's important for us to point our finger at everything everybody's doing wrong. What Jesus does in this passage is he points to the structure of religion. And he said, that's going to be torn down. The thing that identifies people with their so-called faith, that's going to be torn down because it's not the correct thing. It's not so, mad, so much a matter that he's saying that there, there are going to be uh, advances in wickedness. Uh, that is inevitable. The, the advance of wickedness until the end of the age, that's just inevitable. It's always going to get more and more wicked. And then it cycles through. There will be a, a rise of some people group in the earth that's more moral than another. And they will, for some reason, also have a sword. And they will use that sword and establish their morality and reestablish some sense of, of <clears throat> I don't know, I guess, I guess uh, maybe a more conservative version. And then that will grow into a rebellion against conservatism and people will always be looking to be free. No one wants to be, be under a master. We all want to be free to do whatever we want to do. And for us to point our finger at that and say the world is getting worse and worse and worse is not actually true and it doesn't really help. The world is utterly lost, and they are dead. How much deader can they be than dead? And so for us to be incensed against their deadness and the deadness of their spirit is just, in my opinion, missing the point. There is a liberty that comes in Christ Jesus, not a morality that comes in Christ Jesus, but a liberty of spirit that says, I am no longer judged guilty by God for the sins which I have committed. And that liberty leads to a joy, a joy which is not based on the fact that I am no longer sinning, but a joy that's based on the fact that God no longer judges me according to my sin. Now, be careful with what I just said, because I'm not presenting to you the, 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 the version of Christianity where you do whatever you want to and just say, hey, God is cool with it. That's not the case. But what is the case is that the joy of the Spirit is not based upon how much of a beautiful conservative society we can gather around us and protect. The joy of our faith is that we can go into the midst of the death and the darkness around us and bring light to those lost souls. If it's getting darker around you, rejoice, my brothers and sisters, for the light that you carry will not be put out by that darkness. For us to take a stand and to be vocal against certain things in our society, in our community, we, we are allowed by our 
beautiful American liberties to, to uh, let our voice be heard. But don't confuse your American liberties with your gospel mandate. Is that okay that I say that? Don't confuse your American liberties with your gospel mandate. What are you looking to achieve? Because if you're looking to, to achieve an edifice made of really nicely cut, polished stones, let me just remind you of what Jesus said about every effort of men. Not one stone will be left upon another. Not one stone will be left upon another. Every one of the great, of the great edifices, every one of them ultimately ends up Dust to dust, ashes to ashes. The greatest achievements of men. The oldest things that we have, structures of men that we have on the planet, as far as we know, the oldest impressive structures of man would be the pyramids of Egypt. Wouldn't you agree? Maybe the Mesoamerican, I don't know if they go back further, probably, maybe not. Maybe something in faraway China that we just don't know and understand. But I think the Egyptian pyramids are sort of revered as, you know, thousands and thousands of years before Christ and probably the oldest civilization, you know, marvel of civilization that's still standing. But I don't know if you've taken a look at the pyramids recently, at least in pictures, but they don't look very polished, do they? They look like they're falling apart somewhat. And, um, you know, don't be surprised if in some awful war of the future, a bomb falls and destroys some old edifice like that. The end of mankind's best efforts is always the same. It's always dust to dust and ashes to ashes. For we are mortal. We are mortal creatures. And the work of our hands fails. Moses says in Psalm 90, Teach us, O Lord, to number our days that we may be wise. You see, the home that we build for God on earth will never be a permanent home. But the home that God builds for us in his heaven, that is forever. Let us therefore be careful not to try and present a utopia on earth that comes at the expense of our relationship with the people around us. Are you hearing what I'm saying? It is easy for us to begin to hate people who are different from us. It is easy for us. It is easy for us to cloister together with those who are of like mind. It is easy for us to judge and to punish. What is not easy for us is to love our enemies. What is not easy for us is to treat well those who despitefully use us. What is not easy is for us to treat with respect and even with dignity. Those whose choices are not the same as ours. And yet, this is how Jesus treated them. You know, even when he rebuked the Pharisees, it was not a rebuke that was without hope. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Nicodemus was saved. Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin, the council. And he was saved. Many members of the Jewish priesthood came to Christ in the early chapters of the book of Acts. Why? Were they not the enemies of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, at one point they were. But even the enemies of the cross can become the recipients of God's grace. You see, our enemy 
is actually ourselves. And we ought to despise within us that propensity to establish ourselves as some sort of fortress. To make for ourselves a kind of life that cannot be impacted by the world around us. To fortify and secure ourselves and to shut out the world and to put locks on our doors and bars on our windows. Spiritually, figuratively, I think this is problematic. And it's why Jesus teaches us to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Because when we stand as witnesses for His grace before, before those who probably will kill us, because it says right here that uh, brother will be handed over by brother, delivered to death, and father by his child, and children rise up against the parents, and parents against children, and so forth. There is an inevitability of hatred against the gospel of Jesus Christ itself. But the Christian is marked by this thing, that in testimony to Christ, their witness does not change. Their love remains steadfast. It is in the demonstration of love in the most of dire, the most dire of circumstances that potentially the enemy of the cross can become the saved. Stories are told again and again in the early books of the martyrdom of the church. Stories are told again and again of the persecutors of the church coming to Christ when those who were sentenced to death in the arenas, for example, or to the fires, or, or put to death with the sword, or so forth, they would not deny or denounce their faith. They remained steadfast to the end, and they loved even their persecutors. My brethren, uh, my brethren as we consider our voice, as we consider what it is we're trying to preserve, as you look at your society around you and you want to be salt and light, let me remind you that you are salt and light not to the American liberties, but you are salt and light for the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a place for us to be both Christian and patriot. But it is also possible that the patriot can be inspired by Satan. Beware. These beautiful buildings, not one will be left standing upon the other. What are we, not one stone upon the other. What are we supposed to learn from this? Well, what we are supposed to learn is don't put your hope and your trust in the wrong thing. You know, Jesus spoke this word 40 years before the temple was destroyed. Interestingly enough, there was another passage of Scripture very similar to this in the Old Testament that was also spoken 40 years before the first destruction. Did you know that? Maybe you didn't. I'm going to take you there. It's a beautiful passage. We talked about it on Wednesday night in the Bible study. So for those of you who tune in on Wednesday night, here's a repeat for you. But in the book of Zephaniah, we find a passage related to this. And it's the only passage in the Bible in which we actually see God laughing. It's a true story. I mean, we do see in the Psalms God laughing at his enemies. And, uh, and that's a different kind of laughter. The, go the God who laughs at his enemies laughs at the arrogance of his enemies and the fact that they think that they can overcome him. His enemies, of course, being spiritual enemies. 
We were enemies of the cross, I suppose, but the Lord loved us. And God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, right? So we are not the enemies of God in his heart. We have been alienated from God because of our sin. But the true enemies of God are demonic forces that have uh, usurped our authority. We, we abdicated our throne back in the Garden of Eden. And since then, the enemy of God has been working over time. But God laughs at his enemies. Satan's devices and his designs, God laughs from the heavens because, because they will not prevail. But that's a different kind of laughter. Have you ever considered the laughing Jesus? Some of you have pictures of the laughing Jesus in your house. It's a beautiful thing to think about Jesus as one who laughs. As you read through the Gospels, you will not find a single occasion in which Jesus laughed. You will find an occasion when Jesus wept. There may have been occasions when Jesus told jokes or listened to the jokes of his fishermen friends. Probably true. They probably had some good laughs. But it's not recorded for us. And the reason being that the Gospel writers are not trying to show the lightheartedness of Jesus. They're trying to show the gravity of the mission that he came to accomplish. But don't think for a minute that because his mission was important and it was grave at the time, do not think that God is not a God of a sense of humor. Surely he must have a sense of humor. After all, are we not reflections of the Lord? Did he not make us in his image? And there are vestiges of God's image in every human being. Whether they have given over the lordship of their life to Christ or not, there are still vestiges of God's, God's very own nature. There are the fingerprints of God over every single person. And so all the beautiful things that happen in the lives of men and women all across the ages, these are remnants of their divinity, as it were. God's breath of life in them. And surely there are those who are gifted with a good sense of humor to make us laugh. And if that be the case, then surely God must have a good sense of humor too. I'm pretty sure that he's a pretty amazing stand-up comic. And there will come a day when no doubt the Lord will entertain us with a great many uh, really funny jokes. But until then, we must, we must uh, remember that we are at war. Nevertheless, there is a hint of God's great joy in Zephaniah chapter 3. And it's, I searched the Bible for this and I found it. In Zephaniah 3, and it is a beautiful passage, but it's also in the context of woe to the impenitent city. Jesus, of course, has just come into Jerusalem here in Mark 13 and in, uh, in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 23, and also in Luke's gospel, you see this same Olivet discourse uh, preceded by Jesus standing, weeping, looking over Jerusalem and saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you to myself, but you would not come. Woe to you, impenitent city, as it were. And Jesus says, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Something which they said on Palm Sunday. A quote from Psalm 118. But Jesus standing above the city and saying, woe to you, and then proclaiming to the disciples that not one stone would be left upon another is indicative of a prophetic word that was given 40 years before the first destruction of the first temple. And we can't help but see this uh, to be a profound repeat of the same thing. 40 years before the destruction, the warning comes. Old Testament and new. Zephaniah is close to the end of the uh, Old Testament. You can turn there if you wish. Zephaniah chapter 3, 
Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. That would be Jerusalem in this case. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. But the, up, the unjust knows no shame. This was true of Jerusalem in the late uh, 7th century BC. This was true of Jerusalem at the time that Jesus was about to be crucified. And this, my friends, is true of our own nation right now is it not God says I have cut off nations their battlements are in ruins I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them think about about the great cultures the great centers the great uh, political centers of previous generations has God not done this to them Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to the all that I have appointed against you. But all the more, they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. It sounds a lot like what's going on right now. And Jesus stands up in front of his disciples and looking over the temple grounds in this beautiful city, says the same thing. And I would like to suggest to you that if you, the patriot, are feeling this way about your nation and all you can do is bring forth woe, I'd like to suggest that you continue reading. I'd like to suggest that you continue reading because what comes next is not just man's response to a dire situation, but it is what God does. God may also notice the failure of a society that he has blessed to walk out that blessing in honor of him. God may indeed make note of that. And he may say, I will bring my wrath and my judgment. But he never does that without at the same time saying something else. And this is what he says. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. Before I carry on reading, I just want you to stop there for a moment. I want you to remember that when Jesus was raised from the dead, he told his disciples to do something. What did he tell them? Wait for me. Tarry in Jerusalem. Interesting. Tarry where? Tarry in the very city that killed Messiah. Tarry in the same society amongst the same people. Tarry there. Wait for me declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 9, for at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. What happened on the day of Pentecost? 
That all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. What were they doing on the day of Pentecost? Were they not all together in one accord? <laughs> From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. Is it not true that from all over the world there were people who began to hear in their own language as the Lord gave utterance to those who were gathered who were truly waiting for the Lord on the day of his judgment? Do you remember also that in the book of Joel that the prophecy is, I will pour out my spirit upon your sons and your daughters, upon all flesh, right? They shall speak with new tongues, right? They shall prophesy. These things were prophesied by the, the, by the prophet Joel and they were to take place when? In the day of the Lord's judgment. In the day of the Lord's judgment. So the Lord here in Zephaniah says exactly the same thing. He says, wait for me for the day of my judgment. When I pour out my fire, my wrath and my indignation. How does he pour out his wrath and his indignation? Well, it turns out that right here in Zephaniah, it's 40 years later that the wrath and indignation is going to be poured out. The temple is going to be destroyed and Jerusalem is going to be led captive. And Babylon will destroy the city and it will lie in ruins for 70 years. That is true. But there is a 40-year period when God's grace is given. And the reforms of Josiah, the king, take place during these days. Zephaniah preaches during the reforms of Josiah, one of the greatest kings of Judah. A revival takes place. It's not enough to turn the hearts of the people. But it is enough for the Lord to be magnified. And it is enough for the gospel mission to continue, even in exile in Babylon, because those who wait for the Lord will still be waiting for him. Well, as it turns out, in Jerusalem, the same thing happens. They wait for the Lord in that place and wait for the Holy Spirit to pour out this new pure speech. Pure speech. One of the signs of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives is that he purifies our speech. If your speech is peppered with unjust, ungodly, unrighteous, and profane words, then I surrender to you the possibility that you are not filled with the Holy Spirit, but you are instead filled with your own thoughts. Let God purge your heart with his fire, the fire of the Holy Spirit, and bring a purity to your speech and not just the words that you choose but what the words are speaking about listen for from beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers the daughters the daughter of my dispersed ones shall bring my offering this is the end result of those filled with the holy spirit is that they gather the nations together for worship my friends we are not building a nation of patriots we are to build the church of the, of the living Lord, the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are to build a church in which people are able to come to the table of the Lord. To find transformation, to be transformed, to find the love of God and then to share that love with one another in a world that is lost. This is how revival takes place and this is the only way in which our nation will truly be transformed. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For, when I, for then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy hill. Here's one of the things about speaking out of our own sense of pride and justice. Usually we are haughty. 
We are prideful, we are arrogant, and we are pointing at others at how they are wrong. But Christ turns those tables around, and he takes the humble and seats us together with the princes. The Lord raises us up through humility. It's in our recognition that just as we are, we have been accepted by him. Not to stay there, but to be transformed. That God is able to love us when we are dead in our sins, our trespasses, and raise us up together with Christ. Therefore, God can do the same thing for the people around us. Listen, it is not wrong for us to say that activity, that behavior is ungodly and it is dangerous. But it is wrong for us to reject the ones who are perpetrating those things because we think that they are beyond God's reach. I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies. Isn't it interesting that in the opening chapters of the book of Acts, there was a move of God by the Holy Spirit. People began to sell their properties and bring their money and lay it at the feet of the apostles. And the church grew and they took care of one another's needs. And anybody who had lack had their needs met. And, and there was just this beautiful sense of solidarity amongst them. And then came along Ananias and Sapphira who assumed that they could give to the Lord and claim credit for giving more than what they gave. And they lied to the Holy Spirit. And what happened? They were struck. Is that not actually a fulfillment of the prophecy of God in Zephaniah? They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouths a deceitful tongue. Ananias and Sapphira were immediately snuffed out by the Holy Spirit of God because God would not have his church be a church where lies are perpetrated against his Holy Spirit. Too much is at stake. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. None shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart. This is the same daughter of Zion that is the city of Jerusalem. This is the same Jerusalem that he just said, you're going to perish. Everything's going to be destroyed. He's at the same time saying to them, rejoice, celebrate. Why? Why is he saying that? Because as it turns out, there is a Jerusalem which is being built, and there is a Jerusalem which is being torn down. The Jerusalem that's being torn down is the efforts of man to identify ourselves by all things, all things mortal. The Jerusalem that is being built forever and that will never be torn down is the new Jerusalem, Jerusalem that God is building out of living stones of which we are a part. That eternal home where God will live with his people forever. That is not some earthly utopia. That is a spiritual place. And that is the place where we can sing and rejoice. Because that's the place where God is going to sing and rejoice. He will not sing and rejoice in the utopias we build for him here. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. One of the reasons why we get so vocal about our society going to the bad place is because we're afraid. We're afraid of what's going to happen to our kids. But let me tell you, it's not the world that's going to lead your kids astray. It's sin in their own hearts which will lead them astray. The world may offer temptation for that, 
But the truth of the matter is your kids need Jesus just like you need Jesus. And building them a cloister isn't going to make them any closer to Jesus than you were close to Jesus. The rebellion that is bound up in the heart of a child, only one thing can drive that away. And believe it or not, even though Solomon said it was the rod of correction, as it turns out, it's the rod and staff of the Lord. It's God's Holy Spirit and His presence is the only thing that can drive away the rebellion of the hearts of men. If you want your children to remain faithful, don't tell them they can't watch Disney. Show them Jesus. It's not in prohibition that life comes. It's in gazing upon the one who is life. We fear so much. And therefore, we become violent. We become violent with our attitude, violent with our words. God forbid, church. That is not what we have been called to. Put away your sword. Be a testimony to the resurrecting power of Jesus Christ who can come into the midst of a dead and despicable society and raise to life because he is life. Make your heart his home and show that to your children. And Disney will not have one jot or one tittle compromise in your own personal faith and your children will see your hypocrisy. And Disney will be the least of your worries. On that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion. Let your hands not grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. <laughs> you want your children to be okay? Then build a place where the Lord your God is in your midst. And you don't build it out there, my friends. You build it right here. You build it by submission to the spirit of the living God. You do it by listening to his voice. You do it by submitting and surrendering yourself to the scripture. You do it by making your heart humble before the Lord and allowing him to cleanse you. You do it by crying out like David, cleanse me and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Reveal to me through your Holy Spirit any untoward way within me. Show it to me, Lord, for you are a consuming fire. I do not run away from the fire. I run into the fire that is God. Because there in the fire of God, the pure gold is purified even more. That, my friends, is what your children need to see. And your grandchildren. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. That word rejoice is so lamely represented in our English word rejoice. It actually means to spin about and to make loud whooping noises. It means to celebrate with shouting and cheers. It means to spin wildly like a top. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. This is the laughing God. This is the laughing God. He will quiet you.
by his love, he will exalt over you with loud singing. The singing, dancing, loud, celebratory God. That's the God your kids need to see. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. Dads, with all your lame jokes, he will save you too. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. Do you remember that in the opening chapters of the book of Acts, that Peter and John were on their way to the temple to pray, to meet with the rest of the believers. And there was a lame man, lame from birth. He wasn't allowed into the temple precinct. He wasn't allowed into the place where the, the presence of God was supposed to be. It's no wonder Jesus wanted to tear down those walls. He wanted the whole world to know, you don't have to go into that temple. There is a much better temple. You are part of that temple. You are living stones in that temple. And the spirit of the living God is upon you. And God will live in your midst and rejoice over you with singing. Come, let the lame be gathered up and brought in. So Peter and John, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked at him intently. They made him look at them and they said, Silver and gold have we none, but such as we have, give we unto you in the name of Jesus. Rise up and walk. You know why they could say that? Because Zephaniah said it. Because God, through his Holy Spirit, inspired Zephaniah. And Zephaniah said, on that day, on the day of judgment, I will pour out my spirit. And when I pour out my spirit, the lame will be able to come in. Because I am no longer judging according to the way you all judge. I will not let my presence be affected and my presence amongst you be affected by those things anymore. I will change this shame into praise and renown in all the earth. Not only did that lame man get carried into the presence of God, but later in the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas... They raise up a lame man in the city of Lystra, a Gentile. And the priests of that temple, the temples to Jupiter and, and there's idolatrous gods. They come running out of their temple because nobody's ever seen that before. The lame being accepted and healed by God. Zephaniah has been fulfilled. I will make you renowned and praised among the peoples of the earth, and I will restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. That's what God said through Zephaniah. And then in Mark, Jesus essentially starts the first part. And in Acts chapter 2, God completes the second part. And 40 years later, the temple in Jerusalem is torn down. I wouldn't be surprised, my friends. See... Christianity was released from its slavery being just a sort of an appendage of Judaism. When the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem, Christianity was free. It was no longer associated with the Jewish temple. It was now free. I wouldn't be surprised if God in his grace frees the Western church from its attachment to American nationalism. 
Let the warning fall where it may. I encourage each one of you with these final words. Stay awake. Stay awake. And be spontaneous in the power of the Holy Spirit. Speak not your words, but only those you hear from the Father. Heavenly Father, we bring this to you and submit to you in all humility the words spoken here today. As you wish and in your strength, give life to what will bring life. And let empty words fall to the ground and bear no fruit. We commit ourselves once again into your very capable hands. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.